Welcome to our podcast, Revelation Conversations. I'm Steve Goebel, and I'm here with Kyle Hatfield, one of the members of our teaching team who works in Christian publishing, and he's also a teacher in our School of Bible and School of Ministry. And then also, Ken Carson's here joining with us as well, who's an elder uh, at our church and on our teaching team as well. Kyle and Ken, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to a good conversation. Oh, yeah. It's going to be fun. I want to start by giving you, our listeners, our purpose behind this. Uh, We're hoping to utilize this time to unpack more in the book of Revelation and to supplement the Sunday teachings as our church, Ecclesia Eugene, goes through the book of Revelation together. Revelation can be very overwhelming for people, and so we're hoping to bring more clarity to some of these complex and, and honestly divisive issues that we've seen. Each week, we're releasing this podcast at 4 p.m. on Wednesdays, and you can find it through our website, ecclesiaugene.org. Last week, we talked about the major viewpoints and the history behind those viewpoints. And I want to encourage you to listen to that episode before this one, because today is part two of that conversation. So if you haven't listened to that one already, press pause, stop. And listen to that one because otherwise you're going to be a little lost today, okay? Because today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk through the strengths and weaknesses of each of those major positions. Uh, But first, by way of a reminder, we're going to give a brief overview of those uh, different positions. And I want to also just, for frame of reference, it's it's interesting that we're having such a, a conversation, a part one and a part two conversation over one of the chapters in Revelation. Essentially, all of this is centering around uh, the interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, the millennium, which, as we alluded to last week, is kind of funny because nowhere else in Scripture does it talk about the millennium. Uh, And yet, here we are unpacking these points of positions that people have over this section of Scripture here. And so, uh, let's let me walk through these, and Ken and Kyle, feel free to jump in as I try to give uh, a brief overview before we unpack the strengths and weaknesses of these positions. Uh, the first one is amillennialism, and in amillennialism, essentially there is no future millennium. Okay, Revelation chapter twenty verses one through ten is happening right now in this church age. Satan's influence over the nations. With this view, it's been greatly reduced so that the gospel can be preached to the whole world. Christ's reign is currently, it's not bodily on earth, but is heavenly, as he alluded to in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, this is what he says there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All right, so that view would say that that's happening right now, uh, just not in bodily form up in heaven. So that view would hold to we're we're in the millennium, and it's not a literal thousand years. uh, That it's just signifying a long period of time where God will be accomplishing His plans. Uh, Christ will return, and there will be a resurrection of believers and unbelievers. Immediately after the final judgment, the eternal state will start. So Christ is going to return. 
Uh, there will be the resurrection of believers and unbelievers. And immediately after that, we will be ushered in after the judgment into the eternal state. So that is amillennialism at a very high level, uh, thousand foot view. Okay. Um, Postmillennialism, according to this view, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church is gradually going to increase so that a larger and larger proportion of the world's population will be Christians. As a result, there will be a millennial age of peace uh, and righteousness that will occur on the earth. And at the end of that time, Christ will return to earth and believers and unbelievers will be raised. The final judgment will occur and then we'll be ushered into a new heaven and a new earth. We'll go into that eternal state. Then the other terms, and Kyle broke that down so well, premillennialism. And uh, essentially you have two schools of thought here. Uh, you have classic or historic premillennialism and then you have dispensational premillennialism. Classic or historic premillennialism is essentially the, the present church age will continue along, and as it nears the end, a time of great tribulation and suffering is going to come on the earth. After that time of tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ will return to earth to establish a millennial kingdom. When he comes back, believers who have died will be raised from the dead. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits, and these believers will reign with Christ on earth for 1,000 years. And at the end of that 1,000 years, Satan, who at the beginning is, is going to be tied down, he's going to be released, uh, and then people who had been essentially faking uh, that they were in agreement or Jesus followers during the millennium reign will turn against Christ and that, and, and we see that he will return and, well, he won't return, but we see that that battle there, Christ victorious and, um, and then ushered into judgment and eternal state. Dispensational premillennialism, or you could hear it being said as pre-tribulational premillennialism, the differences between the two, uh, one that's really important is uh, it's pre-tribulational in nature. In other words, uh, the difference between dispensational premillennialism versus a classic or historic premillennialism is uh, with this view, dispensational premillennialism, Jesus followers towards the end of the church age before the great tribulation, they will be taken. Christ will return. They will be taken um, away, and so they will not be suffering during the Great Tribulation, and then they will come back uh, and will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, once again, Satan will be tied up and, and will not be allowed to have his uh, demonic influence, and, and we will, as Jesus followers, reign with Christ during that thousand years. And then at the end of that, Satan, once again, just like historic premillennialism, will be released. And then uh, there will be rebellion and a war that Christ will be victorious. And then we will go into judgment and then uh, enter into that eternal state. Okay, so that is a high level, less than perfect mm -hmm. view for each of those uh, positions. I, I would also add with dispensational premillennialism, 
there is a clear distinction between the church and Israel with this position when you look at how it takes hold and uh, one of the pillars of that. But let's start by talking about the strengths and weaknesses of these different positions that that people uh, can have. And I think what's important for our listeners to know is we're not here trying to endorse one particular position to you. Uh, we, in fact, we know that a lot of you come from different backgrounds uh, when it comes to this, and you and you actually hold different positions. And so, I think one of the things that's really helpful from this conversation is asking, "How can we learn from each other? And what are ways that I need to grow in in my understanding of my position?" And and so, I, I hope this helps, and it also helps us when I think of uh, strengths and weaknesses. Weaknesses, oftentimes, we're like, "Oh, I know that's not a weakness," but it's good to receive those areas that could be a weakness in an area that I need to consider, especially when we're talking about interpreting scripture here. Okay. So we're going to start by talking about uh, historic or classic premillennialism. Okay. So guys, let's, let's go right into this. What are, what are some of the strengths uh, and and feel free to jump right in. Uh, What are some of the strengths of historic premillennialism? I'd say for me, it presents the most natural reading of Revelation 19, 20, and 21. It chronologically goes through there, and it and it seems to fit without having to really um, explain how those different events taking place in those chapters fit with the rest of Revelation. So there's it's a very natural reading uh, approach to that section of Scripture. Yeah, also classic premillennialism is uh, historically rooted. It is one of the earliest forms of our views of the millennial kingdom that arose in church history. And while that doesn't automatically make it right or anything, I think that there's something to be said about the fact that uh, for most of church history, uh, this has been a view that has existed and has been seen as as a possible view. I I also think that this view um, addresses seriously that the nature of evil, uh, Mm -hmm. unlike maybe um, especially post-millennialism and to some extent even amillennialism, that that it deals with the fact that there is going to be people who are rebelling against God, who are actively opposed to him. And also in how uh, how Satan operates, you know, amillennialism speaks to the idea that Satan has been bound now. And sometimes when we look at the world, it doesn't seem like Satan is bound right now. Um, amillennialism will say that that's to a limited, he's more limited now, but there's just to me, it addresses that idea that evil is present and real in the world right now, uh, and will get worse over time. And so, I think that's a that's a strength of um, classic premillennialism. Yeah, I think that really feeds off of the the narrative in Scripture that that we see. You know, even Jesus, pick up your cross and follow me, and progressing along into what we read about the church and the explosion of the churches. It's the challenge of that need for endurance. Uh, the, to be the conquerors, the overcomers, and to to go through that suffering. And so I feel like one of the strengths of this position is it really um, showcases something that we see consistently through Scripture, which is, as a Jesus follower, I need to be prepared to endure and to not avoid suffering, but to be able to walk through it confidently, knowing my hope is rooted in a victorious Savior. Yeah, when you look at the Gospels, you look at the epistles, it seems like they all are talking about sort of trying to prepare the church that you are going to have opposition. You're going to face some sort of opposition in the church, 
and in the world. And so you need to be prepared for that. You need to endure it. And then victory comes. Then Jesus comes. And, and so that seems to be the rhythm that Jesus and the apostles are are laying out for the church. Yeah. And I think you could take this as a, a strength or actually a weakness is the approach to a literal thousand years uh, here, you know, as well with this view. It's holding to that. It says a thousand years and it's holding to that. So depending on where you land, uh, which Revelation is going to challenge you in all of those places and how you interpret, you could actually look at that as a strength or a weakness. Because in one sense, you could say, I'm taking this a this literal approach from God's word and I'm honoring God's word. Or you could also say, well, there's a lot of Revelation that is symbolic, that isn't literal, and they're pictures, and we're trying to piece together the pictures, and so it could be a bunch of different things. So that's an interesting thing that could be a strength in some cases, uh, but then also it could be a limiting factor for us in in this. That's interesting because that the first strength that I mentioned is that it's a chronological reading, and, and I said that's a strength, but that could also be a weakness because we just spent the last several weeks saying that the whole book is not necessarily chronological. So, <laughs> so maybe maybe we are missing it there with that. So I think that that's a good point to say some of these strengths may be both strengths and weaknesses, mm-hmm. even as we're trying to figure out um, how how these all fit together. So let's go right into then the weaknesses for this position. What are some weaknesses when we think of historic or classical premillennialism? Yeah, I think just to repeat what you were talking about, the thousand-year millennial kingdom is only mentioned here in Revelation 20, and and you don't really see that in the rest of Scripture. Maybe you can uh, kind of put that onto different passages after you see it in Revelation 20, but you don't see it explicitly stated thousand-year reign, millennial kingdom of the Messiah. And, and, you know, one of the main principles that you're always taught in studying the Bible is let the clear text interpret the obscure text. And mm. if you see a wealth of um, texts that are pointing a different direction and, and one that, you know, may be clear, maybe not, depending upon how you interpret that genre of scripture— um, then you you really got to weigh those things, basically. That's not to say one is right or the other, but you, you have to take it seriously and take that disparity seriously. Mm-hmm. I'd say it also can, can lead itself towards um, fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about how Revelation is not a book of fear, but I think um, predominantly the people who are most fearful of it would have this sort of viewpoint uh, because it says we're going to endure through the tribulation. And so therefore we have to be prepared. And, and sometimes that'll result in a... a responding to what's going on in the world out of fear and out of concern and out of disengagement from society and can kind of create that let's let's build up walls and protect ourselves um, aspect rather than allowing us or encouraging us to engage in the world. It may cause us to pull back and to, um, to, to hunker down rather than to be engaged in the society that we're in. Yeah, that's, that's interesting how you could take the word endurance and go in two totally different places with it. Uh, to some, with this position, endure, they could say, that just keep myself alive, make it through. <laughs> and so whatever I have to yeah. do to protect myself, my family, I'm going to do that. If if it's, you know, if it's a bunker, I'm going to build a bunker, you know, if it's, you know, uh, whatever it may be, you know, to, to stay alive and to be able to endure. Uh, but then there's the other posture you can take with the same word, endure, and, and go, no, I'm I'm called to engage 
in culture and then endure through the pushback that I know that I'm getting and knowing that that's going to be even more difficult as the times get worse. And so uh, it's interesting how even the word endure to, to people can mean totally different things. And it can be that survivalist mentality that that uh, that draws us actually away from what God's word draws us into. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It can create an us versus them mentality where, okay, I'm always going to be opposed. The world's always against me and therefore protect mine and my own, protect the church. And I need to oppose and defeat these enemies. And we kind of forget, wait, what, what is the whole point of revelation? Christ already has won the victory. The, <laughs> yeah. the slain lamb has won the victory through the crucifixion and, yeah. and the resurrection. And so, yeah, getting caught up in the opposition part and we forget the point, the point that we're here to reach others. We have a mission field Basically, and that's yeah. exactly what we're going to see in the coming chapters of Revelation. Mm-hmm. That as we start seeing the judgments and the tribulation unfold, we're going to see these intervening places where the the people of God are actually out there and they are proclaiming the gospel and they are being faithful witnesses. And so, mm-hmm. I think the point of Revelation, even for the classic premillennialist, would say it's yes, it's endure, but it's endure doing what's right and good because it doesn't matter what they do to you. You, you will find mm-hmm. your, you will be resurrected in the end. And yeah, so yeah. it's not, so it shouldn't lead us toward that survivalist or that right. that bunker mentality, but it sometimes can lend itself towards that if we if we don't properly understand what Revelation is saying. Yeah. I, I have one more uh, weakness, and I, and I know this could be petty, but maybe it's, maybe it's the English major in me. <laughs> but uh, narr- narratively, um, it's kind of anticlimactic. I know that doesn't automatically make it wrong or, or anything like that, but after Christ's return, there there's a lull of a thousand years. It, it, it the rest of Scripture seems to be pointing to how the climax is the second coming. Christ returns. Revelation 19 is the big climax of everything. Um, but then, if, if the millennium is literal, then there's this thousand years, and then one more battle after that, and then finally everything comes together. And so, uh, narratively, it it seems like it, it's a little um, wonky, basically. <laughs> and, and it is true that 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 final that final battle at the at the end of chapter twenty is kind of like Satan get gets all of the people behind him, and then he's just gone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just, like, well, that fingers. which I personally kind of think sounds cool. Like, uh, but Th- that yes. is also true. Yes, <laughs> but it doesn't have the same impact as chapter nineteen. You know, where where Christ is coming in, riding on a white horse with a sword, and you know, yeah, robe that, dipped that, in blood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot more drama in chapter 19 yeah. than in chapter 20. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, amillennialism. Let's let's talk about the strengths of that position. I think with this one, just like the the classic premillennialism, amillennialism is historically rooted. It it comes right around the same time as premillennialism, and so um, once again, automatically doesn't make it right, but something to take seriously that for the majority of church history. Um, it was actually the predominant view. And mm. so, um, you know, we can't just kind of brush that aside because we're enlightened moderns or anything like that. I'd, I'd also say it takes seriously the idea that Jesus is currently reigning as king. Mm. We're not waiting for him to come and reign as king. He is reigning and king in heaven right now. And millennialism takes that more seriously and shows us that always not yet aspect of the kingdom mm. is important for us to understand that mm. the kingdom is here, even though it's not fully consummated yet. And I think amillennialism is a real strength that we could learn from, uh, from that position. Yeah. There's a victory yes. posture that yeah. comes with, with that position that 
yeah, it's not, he's not here in bodily form and we're looking uh, at him, but, but we know spiritually uh, in heaven, he is reigning uh, as the victorious king <laughs> right now. Yeah. Mm. And, that, and that's what Revelation 4 and 5 is all about, right. you know, mm-hmm. that he's, he's right now in heaven right. as the king. He's sitting on the throne. We don't have anything to worry about. We don't have to wait until his return yeah. for us to realize that. We can realize that spiritually even now. Yeah. And that's where I think to play off of that, uh, amillennialism sees Revelation as having something that's relevant to every generation of Christians. It's not something that was fulfilled in the past in the first century and now it's over, uh, or something in the future that is like great to know about, but uh, it it doesn't impact us. Uh, Instead, they see, like you said, four and five, that's pulling back the veil. This is the present reality. And then these cycles of opposition are the present reality that the church is going through now. And so it has something for Christians to to think about and understand about the present reality uh, by looking also to the future and what's coming. Let's talk about weaknesses of all millennialism. Well, I, I wanted I wanted to present one more strength. One more strength. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it goes narratively again. So uh, they they do present the second coming as the grand, grand finale of history, and uh, which is how the gospels seem to present it. And and so um, you know to to bring the English major in me out again, it, it's it seems like that. All right, there there's the the big moment, the big final battle. It's the it's like the big Marvel movie ending everything, and it's over. Jesus returns, and then the new heavens and new earth. Um, and so narratively, it 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 feels right. I know that's not a very theological answer, but <laughs> but, but my counter to that will be a weakness in that it puts chapter twenty in kind of this strange place. Um, yes, yes. It, it it doesn't seem to fit in that because you do hit that climax, and then there's, and, and now we're going to take chapter twenty and say, well, that that actually applies to you know all of church history, and so it's kind of it's kind of an awkward. Yeah, yeah, I mm-hmm. understand what you're saying narratively, but I think hermeneutically that it, it it makes them, it it's a less natural reading to have to take that and apply it over there. So I think there's a a weakness there that has to be explained by the amillennial. Yeah, 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 and that that goes right into the weaknesses. Yeah. So that would definitely be uh, an area that you kind of got to go, well, what do we do with Revelation 20 then? Okay, mm-hmm. so yeah. w- what, what do we do with it? Yeah. Um, what are some other weaknesses uh, that that we see in amillennialism? Well, another chapter uh, that they have to take into account is Romans 11, mm-hmm. which talks mm-hmm. about uh, a future revival amongst ethnic Jews. And uh, that's that's Paul's hope for uh, his people. And in uh, amillennials, for, for a lot of church history, uh, saw that the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus and then the church. And they didn't see that distinction between uh, the Jewish people and the church. And uh, in the last few decades, some millennials are admitting that there is a possible revival amongst ethnic Jews now, uh, or, or that that will come in the future, um, possibly during uh, a time of great opposition, possibly just gradually. Mm. Um, but it, it is something that they have to wrestle with. I'd say one of the other weaknesses, again, is the counterpoint of one of the strengths. It The strength was we recognize that Christ is reigning spiritually in heaven, but then that can lend itself to a weakness of overemphasizing the spiritual reign of Christ and deemphasizing the fact that he will come back and physically reign as king on the mm-hmm. earth. And so, again, like the strength sometimes is the counter is the weakness on yeah. that. And we don't want to ever lose sight of the fact. I don't think most amillennials would would disagree with it, but it can, mm-hmm. it can deemphasize the physical reign of Christ on the earth that is still yet to come. Yeah, you can, even if you recognize the 
the true realities, you can still fall into certain tendencies. Mm -hmm. And and that's why it's a weakness. And uh, to play off of that, when you over-spiritualize the kingdom of God, he's just reigning heaven, reigning heaven, then you can kind of neglect working towards renewal in the world right now. Yeah. And it's all about heaven and the spiritual realities. And and you forget that, wait, like Christ wants to reign on this earth. That right. that that's what Revelation 20 is is pointing towards, and definitely 21 and 22, that Christ wants to renew creation. And so uh, what does that mean for the church right now? And, and sometimes it can just be easy to just over-spiritualize everything and neglect the physical world. You almost create a dualistic view uh, of uh, our life, basically. Which is crazy, because I would assume with that view that knowing that he's reigning right now currently like that, you would be just going for it. And as far as the gospel, going for, you know, um, uh, just... As a, as a church and and living your life uh, with with such strength and confidence in that reality, you know, because that is part of this position. It's that's a real reality right now, you know, that he is heavenly reigning, you know. So we're in this time period of 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 great of great hope that you should have. So uh, I think that. Um, you know, a, a weakness could be, you know, over spiritualizing, but man, it, it should move you from that yeah, uh, into exactly. activity yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and we're, we're speaking in generalities, of course. There yeah. are, of course, all millennials who, yeah. who do care about working for renewal in this world, um, but it's it's about recognizing the weaknesses and the tendencies uh, that you can fall into. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go into post millennialism. What are some strengths of post millennialism? I, I don't want uh, just the the hopefulness that things are getting better and that they're going to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a confidence in the gospel to transform mm-hmm. not just people but also society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you look at human history, you kind of see that playing out. Not obviously there are ebbs and flows and and uh, really low points, but you think about how. Uh, disease is is you know, so much disease is being eliminated. We don't have to worry about uh, like dying of smallpox. Um, that you think about uh, starvation and poverty, um, and and of course we we recognize wars are still going on, but the present reality of war that for much of human history had to live with, not not our reality. And uh, and, and so you you look at human history uh, from a really really big far out scale, it does seem to be trending upward. And a lot of that is thanks to the spread of the gospel and the influence of the church. Hospitals were invented by Christians. Um, You know, so many scientific advances were made by Christians who knew that God was a sovereign creator. And so it's, um, you know, you you have to take that into account and and you got to appreciate that. Yeah. When you think of human flourishing, you can always think of it, when would you rather live? Would you rather live today or would you rather live 500 years ago or a thousand yeah. years ago, you know, yeah. I, I, I kind of like having indoor plumbing, you know, that's, yeah. that's kind of yeah. a nice convenience. I, I, yeah. I like not having to um, just do subsistence farming to, to get by, you know, so there, there is objectively a way for us to look and say, man, historically, we are better than we have been ever mm-hmm. in history from, from just a standpoint of human flourishing. And I loved what you said, uh, Kyle, 
a lot of that is because of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, modern science is a, is something that came out of Christianity, that medicine and just even our our belief in in equality and injustice mm-hmm. is is a is a picture of looking at Genesis 1 knowing that we're all made in the image of Christ and that has only come out where Christianity has taken root within society. And so even though there are places where certainly everything's not perfect, we do see this steady march in progress throughout all of human history when you look at it from a big picture. So I think mm-hmm. postmillennialism has something to say about that. Well, and the advance of the gospel that we didn't even mention in that, you know, mm-hmm. as well, when you think of everything and the physical conditions and and, and things that, that we have now, our lifestyles and things, just, it's remarkable. Uh, but you think of the advancement of the gospel and uh, it reaching all these different languages and people groups at a, at a rate that it's never been able to do before. And and where we're at now currently, it's, it's unbelievable to mm-hmm. think uh, how many people groups we've been able to reach with the gospel. You see how the gospel is spreading so quickly in South America and, and even in hard to reach places like China, there, there is revival happening. Uh, it's it, sometimes we don't feel like it because we live in the West. Um, but uh, outside of the modern Western world, like it, the gospel is spreading, which, and, which is and amazing. It's, yeah. And it's spreading places we never would expect. I mean, in Muslim countries, the gospel is going forth there. Even I was just reading an article in North Korea, of all places, most oppressive country in the world. There's a there's a core of Christians there that have come to Christ, and so it is exciting to see that the gospel is advancing, it is growing, and I think that hopefulness from post millennialism mm-hmm. is a strength that we should be thinking about. Yeah. And, and another strength that builds out of that is it motivates you to work towards the the renewal of the world. It motivates you to spread the gospel. You're, you're going to confidently engage the world and the wider culture because you already know the victory that you have in hand, basically, that's coming. Yeah. What are some, what are some weaknesses when we think of uh, post-millennialism? But I'd say it's the opposite of what just what Kyle just said, <laughs> because because if indeed yeah it motivates us to to work harder to bring about the kingdom, it can also become a very human centric mm-hmm. uh, way of bringing about the kingdom, and forgets that no the kingdom only comes because of Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of Christ and His victory. We can't by just one more protest or one more law being passed or electing the right people, we're not going to usher in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can have a tendency for some post-millennial people who think mm-hmm. if we just get the right laws in place, we just have the right things going on in our society. If we just structure things correctly, Jesus is going to come back once mm-hmm. we've got it all figured out. Yeah. I think, I think that also, you know, we talked about as a whole society getting better, uh, but then that's a double-edged sword. You know, in in so many ways, how in the world uh, do you do you say? And and I'm not saying all post millennialists believe this, but a trapping could be to um, deny the extent of the real evil that is happening, mm-hmm. and deny the influence that Satan is having currently uh, in our culture, in our uh, society. It's it's really hard to deny. Uh, the evil that we're seeing, that that we continue to see, and in its own right, progressing in different ways as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why the post-millennial viewpoint reached its lowest point right after World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you saw the the, the most horrific uh, destruction of human life and the planet, the Holocaust, you know, just the war, all of that, 
it's it was really hard to maintain a post-millennial viewpoint saying things are going to get just constantly better. And so mm-hmm. I think that that denial of the the reality that there are, yes, there is progress, but there's progress in some places, but in other places, we would say there's there's regression in what's happening in society. And uh, and so post-millennialism has to wrestle with that. Yep. Yeah, the call to suffer. You exactly, know? Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. There, there's advancements in technology, and then yet we see suffering coming from the technology, anxiety mm-hmm. and uh, deaths of despair and depression, mm-hmm. uh, really, really high right now for our modern era. And when you think about um, like what are the kind of potential outcomes uh, of some of these advances of technology, it it could really create a lot of human suffering, and there's a lot of fear about these things. And so it, yeah. it's interesting how, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. It, it's not just a, a clear cut, basically. Um, I think another weakness is that um, it can lose the watchfulness that the New Testament seems to emphasize for being ready for Christ's coming. Yeah. He's yeah, coming soon. And so, um, you know, we, we've got to be watchful and awake and ready because uh, it, it can kind of just be like, well, things are just going to get better and we're going to keep working to get things better. Um, and, and so why do we need to be watchful? Yet the, the Bible says he's, his coming will be like a thief in the night. Um, but it's not much of a surprise if he comes after like the whole world's been Christianized. And, 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 and you're like, well, yeah, of course it makes sense that he comes then. Uh, um, and so, you know, you, you've got to be able to reconcile those passages with, with this viewpoint. All right, let's, let's look at uh, dispensational premillennialism. Uh, what are some strengths with that uh, position? I think one of the first ones that jumps out to me is that they take Scripture seriously. They they really care about wanting to rightly divide Scripture. And, and, and all the positions, they, 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 they do. take Scripture yes, seriously. Yes. I just want to be clear on that. <laughs> but yes, Kyle, keep going. Sorry to... <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're going to get a lot of letters now, <laughs> but, but there, there is, there is a special emphasis on learning scripture, even for the, the lay person where, uh, the, the grammatical and literary and historical backgrounds, uh, of the Bible, you can understand the Bible. And we see, uh, so many resources that came out of the rise of the dispensational movement, mm-hmm. especially in the sixties and seventies. Uh, you think about like Dallas Theological Seminary, um, uh, Ryrie's resources, uh, Calvary Chapel, uh, where they uh, go verse by verse through passages of Scripture and, and care so much about wanting to to pull these truths out. Uh, and so you see this this huge explosion of interest in learning about Scripture because of the dispensational movement and all the other movements uh, are you know benefited from that basically. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting how that that rise of of expository preaching and verse by verse, uh, all of that came from an understanding that the Bible should be taken in a more literal way, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that and that lends itself from that 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 dispensational viewpoint. And and I think that that's been a good thing. I think that there's been a lot of people very much more interested in doing Bible study on their own and um, preaching that's been a lot more focused on what the Scripture says, and and so. It's it, both of them rose together. Dispensationalism is not just a uh, end times view; it's a, it's a whole view of Scripture itself mm-hmm. that really I think popularized in some ways um, Bible study for mm-hmm. for people within the church. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that you know you talked about they take their Bible seriously. I think 
they take the promises made to Israel very seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we yeah. look at this uh, position, you know, uh, we were talking before we uh, started recording this. Just it takes Romans uh, 11 and deals with that in such a great way uh, when we think about the ethnic revival of Israel. I think dispensationalism also does a really good job of making that distinction between the Old and the New Testament. Hmm. That that there is a different era happening there. You have the they have the the time of the law and you have the time of grace. And I think that 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 distinction is something that is helpful for when we're reading Scripture and gives mm-hmm. us a good understanding of how it is that God has worked in salvation history uh, throughout Scripture. Yep, and the. The other viewpoints have learned from dispensationalism, too. It's really interesting to see how they're kind of in conversation with each other. I pointed out how amillennials have had to deal with Romans 11, and and now some of them are admitting, yeah, that that revival uh, of the ethnic Jews in uh, belief in, in Jesus as the Messiah. And, and so that that came about because dispensationalists were, were wrestling with, what do we do with the nation of Israel? And, and so um, it, it's interesting to see just how these viewpoints are now learning from each other and in conversation with each other. And I, and I think it comes back to, too, there that this is a position that cares deeply about evangelism yes very much uh, so. it, it, yeah. it, it about taking the gospel and, and part of the motivating factor behind that and that's why understanding these positions is so important is the fact that he could come back at any point in time so there is motivation within this position knowing that christ could come back at any point in time uh and and so everybody needs to know about the good news uh while we have the time so there is there is urgency Interestingly enough, that that sense of urgency I've actually heard missing in some of the other viewpoints mm-hmm. uh, where, well, we know Jesus can't come back yet because these other things haven't happened yet. And so there, there's a lack of urgency because they don't think it's imminent mm-hmm. in the same way that you will only find that in dis- dispensationalism. And I think that's a wrong understanding of those other positions. But I, but I know people who have had those viewpoints said, you know, he can't come back because we're expecting this and then this and then this happens, whereas dispensationalism says at any time he could return and then that ushers in the time of the tribulation. Hmm. Um let, let's go into some weaknesses of this uh position. What are, what are some weaknesses um when we think of dispensational premillennialism? I think in contrast to the classical premill and the amill position is that uh it is a, a fairly new idea. It, it's not as historically rooted in church history it came about in the 1800s, so it's really 200 years-ish old. And uh, and so that's not to say, once again, that automatically makes it incorrect. But whenever we see something new come about that like, oh, Christians for 1800 years weren't able to see in the Bible, we, we, mm-hmm. should, we should be cautious and, and uh, always go back to the scriptures and see, is, is, does this square with what the scriptures say? I think dispensationalism also can be uh, overly stringent, overly structured in its hermeneutic, uh, and sees everything in the scripture through this lens of these different dispensations. And that sometimes can cloud or color how we read scripture when uh, it may not be as clear where that where those dispensational lines are. Um, and so there's an over-reading in of that theology into scripture, um, and you end up more in, you find people over, more interested in laying out their charts than they are in actually understanding what God wants us to know from the passage itself. And so I think that that overly structured hermeneutic can, can be a, a, a weakness or something that just is a warning for someone with this viewpoint. 
yeah, you can you can almost get to the point where you you are relying on on this literal understanding, and you can be so literal <laughs> when it comes to um, understanding revelation and, and and relying on well, it says that, so it is it is that. And the problem that you can run into and, and, and a weakness that can happen is there's a lot of revelation as we talked about even already and will go into that's just not literal. And there's there's a lot of symbolism and things like that. And, and so uh, this position can can hold you almost hostage to it's got to be literal and which, you know, it is a double edged sword because what was lacking for so many years is that is that literal approach, you right. know, to understanding right. scripture. So you don't want to just say, oh, that's, that's wrong. Like, no, it's done so many great things. I study with a Ryrie study Bible, <laughs> you know? So, so it, many great things have come out of that. But I, but I also think that you can, you can almost uh, hold, hold on to something where scripture at different points in time doesn't allow you to. Uh, it, it, it goes into symbolism and things like uh, that as well. And I think it can cause you to also go, okay, if, if all these symbols have a literal representation in the real world and you believe his coming is imminent, then you're going to start to look at the headlines and go, okay, this could be this, this could be this. And there's a long list of people who, oh, you know, thought that like, oh, this was this, this was this. And then yeah. it turned out that, that they were incorrect. And uh, that's not everyone, of course. Um, but that's that's always a warning to to take into account that uh, when you're dealing with this kind of genre of of scripture, you you've got to be careful with it and uh, and also keep the main point in view. Yeah, I'd say also the um, how Israel is treated by dispensationalists it can can be tricky as well. We we've stated that as a strength that others have learned from in that it does deal with Romans 11 well. It understands that there's this future ethnic revival coming to Israel. But I've seen some dispensationalists who have overemphasized that to state, almost equate that with the state of Israel, uh, mixing up the ethnic Israel from the actual nation state of Israel. And that can lend itself towards um, sometimes some not very helpful understanding of what, what actually Paul is trying to say in Romans 11. He's speaking of a spiritual revival, not necessarily a political revival of the state of Israel. Yeah, and it's interesting that because Paul, you see in that passage, he cares so much about the revival of his brothers and sisters, and and yet he he doesn't point to a millennial kingdom for the Jewish people where they are supposed to realize the um, messianic promises that were given to the, the the nation of Israel in the Old Testament about the land, about the temple, and uh, the king reigning from Jerusalem. And, uh, and you don't see Paul point that out. And, and that, once again, doesn't mean like it's impossible now that it, it could happen. But um, the fact that Paul doesn't point it out and he's so concerned about it is something to, to pay attention to. I, I think another thing with this uh, position uh, that could be a weakness is it can lead to this, uh, you know, we talked about, and this is another double-edged sword, how this reality, how he could come at any point in time, causes you to share the gospel with um, urgency. But that same way of, of, of thinking that I'm going to be rescued and taken from this time of great tribulation, it can actually lead you into this opposite direction where you just go, 
I'm just going to disengage from society because, hey, I'm not even going to be around. Like, I'm out of mm-hmm. here. Like, yeah. like yeah, yeah, it's getting worse. And and I mean, and, and some people are just like, who cares? Because God's going to come get me. I'm so, going to be raptured and I don't have to go yeah. through it. So why is it my yeah, problem? And, yeah. and yeah. it's interesting how the thing that motivates some with this position, you see so many people that I've even met that hold to this position and that, and this position by, by how they're seeing it, it's actually taking them out of what God is calling them into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that that can be a weakness, this, this, well, I'm going to be rescued. So, so it doesn't really matter. And, and that, and so I, I think that that's something that, that can be a trap uh, in this position. Yeah. Uh, wh- why do I need to work towards the renewal of this world because it's going to burn up anyways. Like, yeah, uh, of, right. cor- of course is, you know, going to hell in a handbasket because that's what's supposed to happen. Um, and so why, why, it's almost, why it works almost a to, defeatist to, attitude yeah, sometimes. Yeah. 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 Um, man, I, I think that one of the things as we, as we wrap this up, regardless of your position or even maybe you're like, man, I'm even more confused. Uh, and so regardless <laughs> of, of your position or a lack of a position, I, I want to emphasize this again. Jesus has already won the victory. Amen. So Jesus has Amen. already won victory. Regardless of of where you land, he has already won the victory, and he's coming back. Like like, did you notice that every single one of those positions, Jesus is coming back, and so we are to live victoriously right now. We're to live with expectancy. We're to live with urgency, and we are called to patiently endure as we move forward as followers of Jesus. I want to thank all of you for joining us today and join us in person this Sunday at 8.30 or 10.30 or online at 10.30 as we continue walking through the book of Revelation.